Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is definitely in the clothes side of things. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, um, my name's Janelle, and I am a denim designer. Um, I run a upcycle denim brand in London called White West. Now, I'm going to jump right in there because denim designer, I keep hearing people describe themselves as this. And I'm curious, what does that entail? Ah, well, it's funny because a lot of people ask me that. um, And it really is as simple as it sounds. I design jeans. (laughs) And I remember when I first started out in my career, people would be really baffled by that. They're like, but what is there to design? (laughs) They're all the same. But um, yeah, I design jeans. I select fabrics, um, spend hours choosing the perfect thread color, um, working out constructions, all of those outfits and shapes. That's a whole whole other story. So, Does it hurt when you put so much effort into the details and people think they all look the same? Um, Yes, it does hurt a little bit. But I also think that they don't think they all look the same. I think they can't articulate what looks different about them. But people do tend to know a gene that they like and a gene that they don't like. And when you... when you kind of walk people through that they have a lot to say about it so um yeah I just kind of rest in the comfort that that there's a lot more to it (laughs) so if we loop back now to uh when you started out as a denim designer uh I mean let's go even further back Mm. what made you even want to pursue a career as that or how did you get into it okay um well I think I always knew I wanted to be a designer. At one point, I thought I would like to be a product designer. And I was studying design and technology at school. And I think that my, I, I, I grew up in Derry in Northern Ireland. There's not much of a design industry there. And my technology teacher told me that that would be a really boring job and that I'd end up designing um, video cassette tapes. That's how long ago that was. Um, <laughs> sort of encouraged me to think about, I think knowing me, they encouraged me to think about something a little bit more creative. Um, so I ended up studying fashion design. And um, why denim? I think I was never really into like hype and and trends as such and I always just gravitated maybe I am a product designer and I always just gravitated back to these products that are designed and built really carefully um sort of probably a, a very formative experience was even still at school I was sent on work experience um, by my school for a couple of weeks and they sent me to the only thing in the time that had anything to do with fashion and it was a factory that made jeans so that's probably more significant actually than I'm giving it credit for um, so yeah there at 17 I did two weeks work experience in a denim factory so a denim laundry um, and just kind of fell in love with the process of making jeans so um, I think even while I was studying it didn't I, I I did lots of did the full spectrum of fashion design at uni, but my final collection, I came back to denim and I worked with that factory to make it. And I set out afterwards just consciously looking for a job as a denim designer. So what brand of denims were they making in Derry? They were making Marks and Spencer's jeans. And I think they also, I, I believe that 
There were also, when I was younger, I think they were making Lee Cooper in Derry or somewhere nearby as well, maybe Bunkrana, um, because I know members of my family worked in the factories in various roles. Um, so yeah, uh, the, fa- the factory where I did my work experience was Marks & Spencer's factory, and that actually turned out to be my first job, designing jeans at Marks & Spencer's. Not anything to do with the factory, complete coincidence really. But Is it still there? No, it's not. Um, sadly, uh, just after. They helped me with my final collection when I was at uni. That must have been 2000, 2002, I think. And it closed within a year or two after. So, yeah. Um, I hope that wasn't down to your collection. <laughs> Probably bankrupt them. <laughs> um, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> But there used to be a, a vibrant denim jeans industry in Wales, I think, as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I've got so much admiration for um, Hyatt, um, who've managed to retain some of those skills and revive them. Um, it'd be lovely if we had had that in Derry, but sadly, all those skills, um, textile skills, now are being lost. So, yeah, there were a few. In fact, in my first job at Marks and Spencers, I was. I wasn't based in London, I was based in a team that was in Leicester and we still had a factory that was 15 minutes away from our office, a denim factory and now by that stage very very little of our production was made in that factory um, and they'd, the factory had an, another outsourcing factory in Tunisia or Morocco um, but there was still a little bit of manufacturing around at that time and I think that that's a really important part of my um, textile education, getting to see a lot of processes very early on. And I think designers who come out and go into jobs, especially at the retail end of the industry, now, I just don't get those opportunities. Um, but yeah, that's certainly, I, I remember going down to that factory to get patterns out on a table and correct things um, and being able to talk to a wash technician there, even though our washes were being done in Tunisia. Um, and it just, it just makes it, um, yeah, it's just really nice to have a tangible place to go and talk about the product that you're making. It must be entirely different when you're actually learning stuff hands-on and not mm-hmm. just sending stuff off by email exactly yeah i think it's so important and that's one of the reasons why i'm such a strong um advocate for local manufacturing not out of any like great sense of nationalism or anything it's um just the fact that we have more connection to the products and we have more connection to the people and the impact of the products if there's if they can be seen, if they're actually um, in our communities. Do you think people care where stuff is made? Um, I think a minority of people care where stuff is made. It's, it's very easy in my bubble to think that people do care. Um, certainly people around me care more than, than average, I think. And because I work in the creative industries and, you know, when, you, when you're when you a maker of something, you tend to have a bit more connection and empathy for makers of other things. But I'm quite often shocked when I talk to someone um, from who's working in like a completely, li- living and working in a completely different environment that they think, 
just make no connection at all with where their products are made. And it's they think about it after only when um, challenged about it or um, when you open a conversation. It might be the case that um, they'll buy the cheapest possible version. Mm. And if it happens to be made in the UK, say, well, that's a bonus point. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, price is probably that still the predominant driver in what makes people purchase something, um, and I mean certainly that's that's not going to get better in this current climate, but um, it's it's a big challenge, certainly mm. for what I do. <laughs> I think we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah, but. I'm still sort of digging into how you got into everything because you did your uni uh, work with the factory in Derry. That's right. So yeah. you clearly graduated and then you went. Um, I graduated. I went to work for Marks and Spencers for a couple of years. And then I the next eight years, I had a couple of jobs on the UK high street. So that's really where I, where I started out with retailers. Um, and then I got the opportunity, um, dream opportunity for me to move to Wrangler, uh, which was based in Antwerp in Belgium. And yeah, I mean, that was just something that I had really been aiming for was to get into a denim brand because although I had been designing denim from the outset of my career there were a lot of times where I where the denim was a bit of an afterthought you know it's you're you're in a brand that's and you're designing denim in the women's wear collection but you know it's not it's not the main thing on anyone's mind and maybe I also have to design like in one job the swimwear and the and the knitwear which I actually quite like designing knitwear um so, yeah, I just wanted to go somewhere where every day... I loved the denim process so much. I wanted to go somewhere where every day was denim day and everyone was a denim expert. So, yeah, Wrangler, it was just an absolute dream for me. Um, and I moved to Antwerp and worked there for six years in total. Um, I was heading up the women's wear collection for the European Wrangler collection. Um yeah, and that was just fantastic to be surrounded by so much knowledge and experience in denim. You know, some of the people that I worked with there had been in the company for 40 or 50 years and had, um, had you just had that much experience under their belt. And then remembering that they had also worked with someone or been mentored by somebody who had worked for another 40 years in the company. So it just it's just com- incomparable, the amount of knowledge that they're there is in a company like that about the product and it was a fantastic experience so wrangler being one of the sort of original big denim brands mm-hmm. from way 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 back mm-hmm. how much of that original sort of denim dna was mm. there still in the women's collection for europe so. oh well i mean that was the really sad part so it i on balance, the experience was extremely positive and I've gained so much from it. But the sad thing was that there wasn't much of that left in the collection at all um, at that point because the the industry um, had just moved so much into stretch and, and skinny fits and, you know, just all the commercial pressures um, on, on a denim brand. So, uh, yeah, it was... 
it was not until closer to the time that I was leaving that we managed to um, start to to get a bit more of the heritage um, of the brand into into the collection again. So was that about the time when the sort of raw denim heritage movement started coming back, sort of around 2010-ish? Well, I think actually the it was after that. So the, the, raw, de, the raw denim um, wave was was running strong and um, Wrangler had a collection called Bluebell, which was um, our interpretation of the Wrangler archives. I was in the women's wear collection and we didn't, we didn't get to do that. Um, but that was all the vintage fabrics, the, um, the salvage fabrics, American and um, Japanese and uh, reiterations of the Wrangler archive, which we all absolutely loved. And, um, it had a kind of niche and cult following, but it just wasn't really com- commercially successful enough for a large corporation like BF. So, yeah, at, at some point that collection got cut. Hmm. Strange, because you'd think that Wrangler would have been one of the big original ones to sort of carry off a revival thing, uh, especially sort of towards the Japanese market, say, and... But maybe it had become a time of well, small Japanese brands, really. Yeah, I think that that's possibly it. Um, I mean, I think the cost of developing a, quite, a collection like that uh, is quite high, and it just wasn't productive enough on the on the bottom line. I mean, unfortunately, working for a large company like that often feels like working for a bank. <laughs> um, and it's not always about how how beautiful the collection is or how, how widely appreciated it is. And I think some of those things, uh, later in my time, um, some of those things and those values were starting to be given more space. Um, but at the time that I was there, it was more about the core lines Certainly. I'm thinking also that maybe Wrangler was a company where people weren't willing to pay, say, the big money for mm. their jeans. But that time is what we're sort of coming back around to now, where people want, or some people want, we're talking bubbles again here, of course, mm-hmm. uh, want better stuff, are willing to pay more for something that lasts a long time and is, say, more beautifully made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at the time that I was at Wrangler, and I left in 2016, I think. Um, So, yeah, at the time that I was there, our main markets were in Southern Europe and Eastern Europe. And I think where the raw denim trends really had trends, movement, um, really had traction was more in Northern Europe. So it was always a little bit... Um, difficult for the the brand to get traction with that, but yeah, um, that's that's probably the other side of it, isn't it? Well, that's the sort of is it the left brain, right brain thing <laughs> where you've got the creative good side of things, and the other side is all business and numbers yeah. and Excel sheets and making things a viable <laughs> business. Yeah, I mean, I think. That- from what I see now, it's a lot more um, a balance of the two. But yeah, there was a lot of right brain. <laughs> so clearly, 
you became disillusioned, fed up, and moved on? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it was just time to to try some new things. I think I had my son actually when I a year, two years before I left Wrangler, and um, we moved back to London. So I was commuting for that job with a small child um, at one point and it just became a bit too much and I, I, it was very, very, very hard job to leave because I just had such a strong emotional connection with the, the brand and the product and the team and we were getting somewhere. It was, you know, things were starting to change by then and it was feeling exciting. Um, but yeah, it just, it wasn't a good personal fit for me anymore and it was time for me to start freelancing um, and taking on, I, I was quite keen to to start working with more premium brands and um, to get those opportunities that we talked about that I just didn't necessarily have to work with the sort of fabrics that I wanted to work with. Um, and so, yeah, I, I went freelance in 2015 and uh, still worked with Wrangler for, for a while, um, but then gradually started to... Um, yeah, to move into working with smaller slow fashion brands, um, slow fashion in air, <laughs> air quotes, um, and yeah, just more, more working with more premium denim. Who did you get to work with at that uh, point? So I worked, my first client was a brand called King and Tuckfield. And I helped them to launch the brand and um, sort of build the whole identity of that. And in the beginning, it was very denim focused. Uh, we had a lot of salvage jeans in the collection and stuff and a lot of indigo. In fact, um, the jacket that I'm wearing now is a, um, a Kuroki double indigo um, jacket from Keen Tuckfield. Um, so, yeah. That was a startup and that was really exciting. And I also worked for Paul Smith at that time as well. And since then, I've worked with Martine Rose, Black Horse Lane Atelier, I worked with quite recently. That was a lovely client um, and a great project because I really massively admire what they're doing. Um, so yeah, quite, quite a variety, really. <laughs> I'd say that's, uh, I mean, Paul Smith, not your typical denim brand, but mm. very much a design-led brand. Yeah. Uh, King and Tuckfield, I do recall their sort of dressy denim trousers. They do have dressy denim trousers, yeah. That was definitely part of the, the DNA of that. We had some classic five pockets as well. Um, really nice women's denim salvage fits. The dressy ones looked so good, though. Yeah, I mean, they still make those trousers. They, yeah, they're really good. They don't. I don't think they do quite as much indigo anymore, but yeah. yeah. It was just so nice to see some sort of denims. I don't know, can you call them jeans if they're not five pockets? Yeah. Well, I think this is something that I really love to design because I love denim as a fabric. And I think one of the first things that attracted me to denim as a designer, maybe really as early as that visit to my first visit to a factory when I was still at school was that alchemy of the fabric and how it changes. And, you know, um, in hindsight now, um, it changes with the application of a lot of quite intensive chemicals, but um, it also changes, as we know, with natural wear. And, um, yeah, I just, I think that that shouldn't be restricted to a five pocket jean. I think it's a beautiful fabric to use in many other things. And I love how 
as the garments, as these indigo garments get older, they get more beautiful. Um, so I think that's a quality that we can bring to tailoring, a self-tailoring. I don't see why indigo has to be restricted to to workwear garments and workwear shapes. I like the cross-pollination. That was one of the sort of things I liked about the raw denim selvage when that came in, mm. that we sort of stopped having all these awful washes or yeah. treatments. Can you talk a bit about bit about that? Well, that's, what, that's an interesting one to talk about because, the de- I mean, as a designer, I was, like most denim designers, very obsessed at one point with being an absolute expert on how to recreate these vintage washes with um, sanding and uh, chemical applications. And um, I mean, that that process was, it was a craft in itself and it was like making a painting. And so I, I was definitely a part of that. Um, I think now, uh, probably maybe as much as for the last 10 years, I haven't done much of that at all. And I much prefer to either work with a raw fabric or um, a very simple wash just to um, to desize the fabric or um, just to soften it a bit. And, and to, yeah, just be patient, <laughs> make your, make your own, your own fades in a, in a denim garment or vintage, buy a vintage garment or rework. What I do now is re, reworking and remaking fabrics that have already been worn. So I still, I, I absolutely love how denim looks when it's worn. Um, but yeah, I don't do very, personally, I don't do an awful lot of the, um, the pre-wash denim anymore. I do a bit still. I still do some denim consulting. Um, and part of what I do is advising people on the new technology that's uh, come, come around in denim that's lower impact and uses less harmful chemicals. So I still get involved with some clients in a bit of washing, but most of the clients that I work with don't wash or don't wash intensively. And that's probably quite deliberate on my part. I have to admit, I'm one of those freaks who think that the denim is best on day one when it's still crisp and yeah. smells of indigo and it's all nice and blue. And from there on, it's all downhill. Really? That's so interesting. Because um, there is a stage when people really fall out of love in with their denim. And you can see it because I collect, um, not as in a collector, but because in my work I source worn garments. There's a, there's a stage that in the fade, which is kind of like a a no man's land when you haven't quite broke it in and got contrasted. Basically, just when the indigo starts to look a bit old and worn and so many people throw their denim away or, or give it to the charity shops at that stage. And I think that the, um, the raw denim community don't do that, obviously. But people who buy into that look... Um, from more mainstream or premium contemporary brands. I find a lot of that at that stage in the the waste centres and in the uh, charity shops. I think it might be a similar process you get with barber jackets, mm-hmm. where you have people who like them new and crisp, mm-hmm. and once they're starting to look a bit less new, they'll get yeah. rid of them. yeah. 
And then you have the people, and I'm oddly enough in this group, when they look really old and ropey, mm -hmm. that's when they look best. So I like my jeans crisp and new, yeah. my barber's old and ah. <laughs> crummy. So what do you do with your jeans when they start to fade a little bit? Sometimes I just sell them. Mm. Sometimes I just keep wearing them, but I maybe don't think they look so nice any longer. And do they get to a stage where you like them again, or do they get to a stage where you really can't I stand them? don't know if I've ever really kept any that long. And I tend, I mean, I'm not the sort of person who likes them all uh, holy and yeah. worn and yeah. crummy looking either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it. You have, you have some of the guys who, I mean, they want their jeans looking so scrappy and ropey <laughs> and their boots all scuffed. And, but no, I yeah. mean, I'm not a manual labourer. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So I don't appropriate their look either. So okay. I don't know. Yeah, well, that's the sort of jeans that I like to collect um, and rework because they've still got lots of life in them. The fabric is still, uh, yeah, it's still got years left in it, so it can definitely be used for something else. So let's get into that because your current venture mm -hmm. is your own company and you recycle, upcycle, downcycle, cycle. Yeah, <laughs> Um yeah, so I like to say upcycle uh, because that's it's it's quite important that you're making something that is improving the prospect of a a, a waste material um, rather than downgrading it. Um, so yeah, initially I started off just working with all the waste that I was generating as a denim designer, um, which is it's colossal actually. People aren't really aware of it, but creating jeans as a design process just generates so many more samples than any other product. Um, because obviously you have to do all the fit development that you have to do with any fashion um, and textile product. But with denim, you have to, well, in, in um, commercial denim, you've got loads of wash tests to do along the way. And all the mills, when they want to sell fabrics, they, they make these miniature jeans that they, yeah, little miniature jeans <laughs> that nobody can wear. So they're not even full jeans, actually. They're just like one one leg of a jean. Um, we call them leg <laughs> tubes. And denim designers just drown in this stuff. Like, we, we just got boxes and boxes and boxes of it. Um, and so... I started off just trying to upcycle my my own waste um, and yeah make it into something that kind of because I, these fabrics they were beautiful beautiful fabrics but just in really small useless size pieces so I just wanted to do something that could kind of make them useful and beautiful again and it was a personal project to begin with just making some stuff for myself um accessories mainly and yeah just grew from there so white weft uh, um is a, a, a i like to say that it's a it's first and foremost a, a, a denim design studio um a craft denim design studio um but we work with upcycled materials because it's equally important to me that everything is really beautifully made so where do you source your denim and what are you looking for? Um, okay, so we've got quite a few different products now. Um, we source from designers in London and design studios in London. They will send their 
where all these little miniature genes they, they send them to us when they've when they're done with them at the end of the season. Um, I source from the textile waste centers, so where when you put genes in the recycling bin, um, they go off to get sorted, and what isn't suitable for resale. Um, just gets bailed up and it probably would get shredded into rags for mattress filling or something like that but sometimes there's like barely anything wrong with a gene it can just be that it has like a little rip somewhere or a stain or, or something like that so yeah we source those kinds of genes as well or it could be that they um they had a broken zip or sizes that just wouldn't sell so we, we source down from there and then also a couple of mills send um denims from their product development archives as well so it's a variety of sources I'm trying to think if I've missed anything yeah it's generally not from I do a little bit of sourcing things like from local charity shops if I I just uh, need to get something quickly or if I just come across something um, but mostly from industry people in the industry the availability must be almost infinite it's infinite i have emails and messages on instagram all the time because people don't really want to throw this stuff away but they just don't know what to do with it so yeah i'm constantly getting emails from people saying would you like me to i'm I'm clearing out my studio do you need more denim or even so i do denim repairs now as well which i'll probably talk about later but um when I've advertised that locally, I now get a lot of people in the neighborhood, Facebook groups even messaging me saying, I don't want to throw these jeans away. Can you use them? And I can't like the logistics of having to go around houses in the neighborhood, picking up individual jeans. I can't really do that. But yeah, there's there's just no shortage of, of waste jeans. Do you use jeans that are both stretchy and not stretchy? And I'm thinking here of the sort of plastic content in them. Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's a really important part of our product development journey. Um, I much prefer to make things with non-stretch fabrics. And most of the work that I've been doing, designing for brands over the last uh, seven or eight years has been non-stretch. But... 90% of the denim that we make today is stretch and most of the denim waste we have is stretch and stretch denim can't be recycled at the moment at scale. There's a few little pilot and small scale initiatives, but, you know, if you buy a pair of stretch jeans today um, and you're done with them in two years time, it likely can't be recycled. Um, So we deliberately um, set out to look for some products that we can make from stretch denim. And that is a lot trickier as a product development process because it's actually quite hard to, to sew it. And it's really hard to sew two different stretch denims together and make it look nice. Like even a, sewing a one stretch denim together in a garment it has enough challenges but sewing two stretch denims that might be slightly different weights, slightly different elasticity together, um, it's really hard to make it look nice and, and make it look like it has value because it puckers at the seams and just tends to look really cheap. So yeah, that was a challenge and it definitely worked through loads of ideas of what to do with it. Um, and garments didn't really work. Um, bags work sometimes but there's um you know just a certain fabric can just 
you can have maybe seven out of ten will look great and, and the other three will look rubbish just because of the, the um, variety of elasticities in the fabric. So yeah, finally, um, we made a slipper and uh, that just seemed to be a really good use of the stretch denim because there's not really very many seams on it. Um, and no, the seams are really short and really small and the properties of the stretch are actually really beneficial in that product because it molds to the shape of your foot. Um, and yeah, so that, that's what we've been doing with the stretch denim. And yeah, really hope to be able to to make some more products with stretch just because there's such a high volume of waste. That's very clever. <laughs> I was wondering where you'd where you'd end up there. Oh, I, I don't um, actually know where we're going to end up there because it is like it's a little bit of um, it's an obsession. I really like I say I love to work with the the rigid denims. To me, they're the most beautiful. But part of what we do is about trying to find hacks and solutions for the the problems that we're faced with as a society um, and the problems that we're contributing to as an, an industry. And so, yeah, this, this stretch denim part of the picture is really important. And I hope that people, when, when people, when they see the product, they are really surprised by the quality of it. Um, and they're really surprised by the finishing of it. So I hope that people don't notice and feel like the stretch denim is devaluing the the product at all. Oh, interesting. I mean, it might just be my impression or something, but I always think of stretch denim. It makes it's used mostly for cheaper jeans, mm. which might be totally wrong. Uh, it's probably used for really expensive jeans as well, but. Um. It is used for really expensive jeans. I think in menswear, uh, the most expensive jeans are probably rigid denim, selvage denim, um, Japanese denim. But in women's wear, the, the expensive jeans would be the LA brands. Um, and yeah, they're all stretch now. Mainly, there's a couple of... Smaller, newer ones that are making rigid jeans. I mean, it's there's no denying that 100% cotton jeans are making a bit of a comeback, but the the volume of stretch still far outweighs that. I mean, even when I was working at Wrangler, there was, I think there was barely a rigid denim even in the men's collection. It's just in mainstream denim, stretch has just completely engulfed the market at all price points. I think. And I personally, because I wouldn't, because I don't buy it and I, I haven't bought it for more than 10 years, I, I forget that sometimes. But when you go and you see what's in the charity shops and what's in the waste centers, and certainly when I went to the textile sorting facility and told them I was looking for stretch denim, they were delighted um, because they have so much of it. And they said that really the only thing that they can do with it at the minute is um, it gets cut up into large rags and it's stretch denim is really good or denim in general is really good for wiping rags and that's basically a rag that will be used to wipe oil off machinery parts by mechanics and then it goes in the bin so it's not recycling really 
It's, yeah. Proper downcycling. It's proper downcycling. It's very, very temporary. Um, so, yeah, there's, it's a big problem. I have heard tell that um, stretch denims are very comfortable. Um, and my wife does often mock me for my cardboard-like Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so many people just feel that they couldn't wear a, a raw denim at all because it's it's so stiff but i agree i i prefer to to wear something that you that i don't know you just, you just want to feel that it's there um that's a good way of putting it yeah i feel secure in it there was an awful photo making the rounds uh might have been about a year ago of a pair of stretch denim jeans that had rotted in the ground yeah yeah that was Wrangler. Um, there, yeah, so my, my friends at Wrangler came across that one. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm so pleased that it's it's been so well circulated because a lot of people have understood what's in denim just from that picture. I think people, even designers, I've recently had to explain to a designer that stretch fibre is plastic, and you think that this gets covered in in any sort of fashion and textile education and it's quite shocking but some I've recently realized that some designers think that stretch is made from natural rubber but yeah but this yeah this garment it's just such a fantastic visual aid so basically everything is has of that gene that's been buried has disintegrated apart from the the seams, which are held together with polyester stitching, so that hasn't disintegrated, um, and the the weft threads, which were just the the polyester and the elastane part of the weft threads. So yeah, it's quite it's quite something to look at. And actually, if you um, so I've spoken to them about the gene as well, and they said that when you touch it, the indigo dust comes off on your hands, which is really interesting because obviously the indigo is also synthetic. Um, and so the, the cotton disintegrated and left the, the polyester and the elastane, but also the dye stuff, which I think wow. is really, um, yeah, there couldn't be a better visual aid for us as a challenge to designers that we, ha- we have to figure this out. Mm. You mentioned indigo and synthetic because mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about, oh, I just love the natural indigo, but I don't think there's much of it actually being used. No, there's really not. And there's a lot of confusion about that. So I think uh, you quite often hear people talking about 100% indigo. And I think people confuse that with natural indigo, but there's very little natural indigo, um, even in the raw denim scene. And Pure indigo, which is often talked about, or 100% indigo, um, is just chemically, it's chemically identical to indigo, plant, plant dyed indigo. Um, and what a denim mill means when they talk about pure indigo and, or 100% indigo, is that it doesn't have any, what we call sulfur top and sulfur bottom. Um, which is any um, additional colour added either underneath or on top of the indigo to give it a different cast. So sometimes uh, you might add black on top or um, you might add green or a yellowy tint underneath. 
Um, and I think that it does, it does cause some confusion. I've also worked with a lot of brands um, who have told me that they're using natural indigo, which really surprised me. And when I looked into it, we realized that it wasn't natural indigo at all. It was pure indigo. Right. But I, I actually now working on a really exciting project um, with a company in India um, who are natural dyers and natural, yeah, they, they're natural dyers and they, they print at the moment with natural colors and they are cultivating, they've, they've bought a new plot and they're cultivating natural indigo and they want to learn to make denim and there's a lot more talk about it and a lot more interest in it. So I hope we will see more natural plant dyed indigo coming back, but there's not much at the moment. There are things happening in the old sort of denim fabric scene now. Um, well, you're saying natural indigo coming back, but you've mm. also got new fibres coming in like hemp. Yeah, yeah, which is really great. Um, that's exciting to see. Um, and I, I love hemp denims. Um, I love denims that have a bit more of a slub in the character. So, um, And also the the stiffness of that. But yeah, there's a lot of technology around it as well, which is going to make... Um, fabrics that don't look like what we traditionally understand hemp to look like that look more like cotton and some of the bigger brands are really getting into that Levi's I think are massively investing in hemp as a an alternative and a complement to cotton so yeah it's quite quite exciting because it's um it has so much potential for the full pro- crop to be used in other products and it also just requires much less input to grow it than cotton so I think definitely I mean I don't I'm not one of these people that demonizes cotton and I think we've um there have been a lot of scary stats um shared around about about cotton but there's a lot of nuance to that there's there's obviously good cotton and bad cotton um but I think it's always good to have more options and to have a few more fibres in the mix for denim. I often find myself a bit baffled by the numbers that are used when they're talk- people are talking about cotton mm. um, because they seem to sort of just appear from nowhere and they're often wildly huge. Mm-hmm. But I think you have a different view on uh, the water usage of cotton um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in this actually, but I I do know that the the stats that some of the stats that have been used um, were lacking a lot of context. Uh, so I think there was one that was used for a long time um, about twenty thousand liters something of water going Sounds into a gene. I think the industry now recognizes that it's more likely to be around six to seven thousand. Liters. Um, Still big numbers. Yeah, I might actually want to check that. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me email you by that one. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm definitely not a statistician on this. But yeah, I think it's just really important that you, you know about the cotton that you are using in the product that you're using so that you're asking direct questions about that. I mean, a lot of these stats are generalized across the, the whole industry, but um when you buy a fabric from a mill, finding out, do they know what farm that came from? Have they got traceability on it? Have they got any, I mean, this is going really deep, but have they got any information, any data 
So it might, it might be organic cotton, but have they got any data about um, the health and the biodiversity of, of the farm? Um, which is, th- these are the questions that are um, thankfully um, coming to the surface to the surface now um, and hopefully we'll be making some progress there with cotton as well and maybe making some more progress with the recycling of all the mountains of cotton and clothes and whatever which we have already made yeah absolutely yeah i hope so although mixed fiber has kind of put us back there yeah, so mixed fibre is a big problem. Um, and I, there's a lot of work and development and, um, research companies that are now, um, able to, to break down the, the mixed fibres, like the cotton and the polyester. Um, and I thought, I was hopeful that this was almost, uh, ready for market. And there are a few of them that are recycling stretch denim. Um, but I was recently talking to a large mill in Pakistan who do recycle denim. They do camp, um, mechanical recycling of denim where they kind of like smash it all up and make it into new fibers. Um, and their perspective is that they're, I mean, they have a lot of um, investment in technology there, but they feel that they're a very long way away from being able to recycle stretch denim. Um, and yeah, so for, for the for the meantime, um, we should definitely be trying to make less of it and make as much as possible make garments from mono materials. So looping back to what you're doing in your business now, you're obviously gathering in all these old jeans which are not fit for wear, mm-hmm. hence upcycling waste you're making slippers yeah making anything else yeah uh we're making quite a few accessories so let me think so slippers bags um bags are always a good one to make from upcycled materials and then one of my favorite things that we've made this year is a baseball cap um which was a really exciting product for me. I've always wanted to make a baseball cap, um, but it's not something... We make most of our products, including the slippers, in our own atelier. Um, the baseball cap wasn't something that we could make there. Um, and I have worked with a, a factory in London. It's a, a luxury... Um, a luxury women's wear um, factory who during the pandemic they just obviously didn't have the orders for um, silk occasion wear dresses or um, you know the the runway collections weren't happening in quite the same way and they actually diversified into making learning how to make baseball caps Um, and so we've made a cap from all of the the really small swatches Um, I talked about those little miniature jeans that the mills make that's not all that they make before you get a miniature jean you get 
cards with small swatches, maybe like half an A4 size um, of the fabric on it. And yeah, we also don't want to throw those out. And I, I was stashing up my most favourite swatches. So all the lovely Japanese ones and all the beautiful natural indigos and the, the vintage workwear ones. Because um, I really didn't want to get rid of them. And yeah, that's what's gone into the baseball caps. So yeah, that was that was really exciting because it's factory, the attention that they put into their really exquisite silk women's wear, they've given the same attention attention to making a baseball cap. So I'm really pleased with how that's worked out. I did notice one of your baseball caps had some indigo tweed on it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's all this. I mean, I love a novelty indigo. Um, I think that fabric would have been from Berto a few years ago, the Italian mill. They did collaboration with uh, another Italian um, mill called Massini, I think. And they made some really interesting novelty things. So there were lots of double indigos tweeds, piques, herringbones, things with wool in them. They, they, I think this other mill that they were working with also maybe specialised in um, things like herringbones and, and wools and tweeds. And so the combination um, in those fabrics was just lovely. Um, Bedford cords and things like that. So, the, yeah, the caps, they've got a mix of all those favourite fabrics in there. And some, I mean, they're, they're all 100% cotton, the fabrics that I've used in the caps. I didn't use any stretch denim in there. Um and yeah, it's just all the all the really good ones, really. But that's so sure, that's one product. Yeah. I'm sure everyone listening will now have noticed that you called indigo tweed a novelty item, <laughs> and realise how offensive that is. <laughs> is it not? Oh, what do I mean? Uh, that's an industry word, really. So it's, it's that's really a mill word. So when they do their mill presentations and they come with it, yeah, the left hand, well, the, the right hand twills and then um, the novelties. Every mill has to show the novelties. Yeah. Those are the really niche things that all the designers select. Um, well, niche, I can work with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it, I mean, they're my favorite. So I, I'm, I'm not offended by that. I hope I didn't offend you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> You'd that makes my notice. cats novelty cats, which they're not. So. You probably noticed when I said indigo tweed the first time, my voice was sort of quite emotional, ah. um, being a bit of a tweed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's a beautiful thing. I love it, an indigo tweed. Sorry to interrupt, but at this point in the pod, you're probably wondering, where are the ads? I miss the ads. And you're right, there are no ads. I hate ads. If you'd like to buy me a coffee, though, you can go to buymeacoffee.com, enter gomology. And it's easy. And uh, yeah, let's continue on. Do you think you're making a difference in what you're doing? Um, that's that's a good question. Um, and I think sometimes I even allow myself to think that the volume of what I'm doing is so small that it's not making a difference. Um, but I think that's a, a really one dimensional way of looking at it. The reason that I started working like this was because when I was working in bigger companies, I felt like I wasn't making a difference. I felt like the, for all the sustainability, um, advice um, and guidance that I was given that uh, the speed and the pace of change wasn't really enough and that um, 
the action wasn't really radical enough. And in doing what I am, in working in the way that I'm working now, I was sort of challenging myself, saying, well, if you expect a company to um, to change what they're doing and make um, make sacrifices, then what are you prepared to do the same? So in doing in what in doing the work that I'm doing now, um, that was me stepping away from some of the the other contracts that I had at the time. Maybe like I don't know doing. Uh, trend research for um, bigger retailers and stuff like that. Um, and so I think that part of this is just about all the collective small things that come together to make the big thing. Um, I also think it's really important that people see things being made. I may have touched on this earlier, but people see things being made again in their local communities and that we we talk about materials and um, what things are made of and where where things come from as much as possible because it's that emotional connection that we've lost um, possibly I think a lot because things are just not made near us anymore like people just don't know where what textiles even are um, so yeah I just think that uh, maybe yeah what I'm doing in it doesn't make a difference. It's, it's a drop in the ocean of the, the problems that we're faced with, but I'm not alone. I'm kind of um, part of a movement of people. And yeah, for me, that that's that has to make a difference. <laughs> I have to try. I think that's a good, uh, good answer. Oh, thank and, you. Uh, I mean, you can't expect one person to single-handedly save the world, but... Mm you might be inspiring others to also make an effort. Yeah, that's it. I mean, I still also do consulting for other brands and some of the other projects that I'm doing now, I can tell have been inspired by what we do at White Worth. So people are coming to me and saying, can you help us to upcycle this waste that we have? Um, And from the experience that as a designer I'm getting from the process of working with waste at White Weft, I'm able to put that together with the commercial and product development experience that I have to, to find solutions to some of those bigger challenges. And one of the projects that I've worked on recently is with a, a large retailer um, who's upcycling jeans. Now it's going to be for that retailer, very small volume of what they do but compared to what I do at White Weft it's massive um, it's like a thousand pieces or something like that um, and so yeah I do think that going on this journey for me as a designer and for other designers is important um, and sometimes I do get discouraged like I get myself in rooms and conversations with people who are I don't know making x million meters of this or yeah up recycling 20 million tons of <laughs> whatever and um i do feel a bit discouraged like what am i even doing here but i think we all just gotta do what we can where we are well i mean at least you're honest about what you're doing which is more than a lot of the big companies are I mean, making fleece out of 
new plastic mm. bottles or just straight out lying about stuff. Greenwashing is pretty much the sort of growth industry within fashion now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did notice another use of uh, denim old jeans this week. Um, Grenson launched uh, mm. boots. That's right. Of- yeah, yeah. Kelly Kelly Harrington's done some Grenson boots with jeans. Yeah, I've seen those. Not quite what I'd wear, but I thought they looked pretty good. Yeah, they look really cool. Um, I mean, I think that... So what I like about things like that is that they are fun and they are expressive. So I don't think that a, a future of sustainable fashion or more more responsible fashion has to be dull. Um, and I think that working with waste materials is really key to that, to, um, to bring in creativity and bring in expression back into um, the sort of slow fashion and sustainable fashion um, conversation. Yeah, so I'd love to have, get my hands on a pair of those. <laughs> Although I, I would totally destroy them. <laughs> <laughs> I did notice you uh, might have hinted at there that a lot of slow fashion is a little dull. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly not all, and it's improving a lot, but I think that's definitely a common perception, isn't it? Um, and a little beige, a bit... Maybe a little beige. Oversize. Yeah, exactly. A bit unisex. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and just, I mean, much as I embrace that aesthetic, there's there's a lot of people who just can't buy into that. Um or, yeah, it's, it's just way too much of a stretch for people to buy into that. That's back to the sort of bubble thinking, though, again, isn't it? Because mm. it's it's sort of us and them, or it's those that get it and the masses who don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think to truly succeed in changing things, we have to manage to get, if not everyone on board, at least most people. Yeah. Which is. <clears throat> a huge, huge challenge for what amounts to a few makers, a few small makers, a few well, slow fashion influencers, podcasters, bloggers. And do you think genuine change can come without the industry actually wanting to change itself? Oh, I like that question. Um, I actually think that it can. I think that people, like, there's... Grassroots has more, um, a bigger part to play in this than companies want to give it credit for. Um, because I think the choice that people can just make is just not to buy anything. And that's actually a really easy thing to do. And it's much easier than anyone would want us to think that it is, um, or, or to buy less. Um, so. Yeah, I've actually forgotten your question. I got so excited about that. <laughs> but, um, yeah. Can, can change happen without the companies coming on board and wanting to change? Yeah. Yeah, I think it can. Yeah. I, I'm that sceptical too. Well, grassroots and it being led by people. I mean, I see brands being outed in, well, say, on social media for poor practices. They're being written about in, say, The Guardian, Mm. about how crummy they are. And still you have people I 
think of as sane, sensible people promoting their goods. Yeah. I have mentioned a certain brand a number of times, so I won't mention them again. But it just disappoints me so much that they can keep making such crummy stuff and they're trading on their good name, which was built up over decades. Yeah. And everyone in the know knows how shit they are. And still people are buying them. Yeah. That, that is frustrating. But I do think there are movements that are happening. Um, I, I do think there are movements that are happening now that will affect how people are buying. So repairing, for example. Um, I see a lot of people showing more interest in um, repairing their clothes. Um, and there's still not the... There's not enough um, repair services around, but like, for example, recently I launched a denim repair service and it wasn't something that I really expected to be a big deal because I thought that the cost of my repairs um, would be a bit prohibitive to people and that people would um, think that it was cheaper to buy a new pair of jeans because it you know, quite often is. Um, but yeah, I was really shocked and astounded, actually. I just posted it on some local Facebook forums and people just keep coming with their jeans um, and they're not you know people are they're not coming with like beautiful Japanese salvage jeans or anything I've had a few pairs like that but most of them are pretty average jeans some of them are really old high street jeans like jeans from Topshop from 2002 or something that people just don't really want to get rid of and so I think that um, people that are a bit more ready than we give them credit for, for the solutions. But the problem is just getting the conversations about the those solutions out there um, because the brands want to control a narrative that keeps feeding their current business model. Um, and brands even, I think, as soon as these changes start to happen, they will be getting involved in the repair movement as well and wanting a bit of that. Um, uh, certainly you see it already, brands really trying to control the resale market and trying to buy up their own brand because they they see that they can't continue to keep making things at the pace that they are anymore and that the customer is the customer, the the public are waking up a bit to that and so they have to find other revenue streams so I, I'm quite hopeful about that that change can be led by the public as well um, and that yeah we can take control of that optimistic naive I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't know what to say really I mean I'm hopeful otherwise I wouldn't have been podcasting every mm. week um I mean, I'd love to see real change. Uh, it did get me thinking, though. I think you're the third denim repair service I've heard about in the UK now. Oh, yeah, there's a few of us now. Uh, but not many. No, not many. There, there are, there's a few and plenty of room, plenty of room for more. Um, well, I'd, I mean, I think so. Uh, I want to ask you about your pricing mm. in a moment, but it does strike me that take for shoes you had shoe repair places probably lots more before and not so many now mm. and i think even those are dwindling a bit yeah. but was that 
was their demise led by people not wanting to repair their shoes or shoemakers making shoes that weren't repairable or the price of shoes being less than it would cost to put a new sole on them. I mean, something happened there. Yeah. it's. I imagine it's a combination of all of those things. Because I, I, I've definitely taken shoes to a shoemaker before and been told that they couldn't be repaired, that this type of shoe can't be resold or whatever. So that's for sure a part of it. Um, and maybe it's also skills. But do... I mean, this is actually wild speculation, but when it comes to textile products, I see this, that there's not the same skill level um, around now. We're just not, there's not so many people going into textile jobs. And so what they, the kind of level of repairs that um, an alterationist can do um, is a bit limited. I mean, with the denim repairs, people have told me, oh, I'm so, I'm amazed that, like, I was about to throw these out. I've taken them to a dry cleaner and they, in the UK, that's where our repairs are generally done. I've taken them and they said that they won't do denim or they can't um, do a fly or whatever because they just don't have such a, a, the the depth in the skill set anymore. So that could be it. But yeah, the price. I mean, the price is a big thing. And I think it's only as we talk more about the right to repair. Um, and there's been a lot of conversation about that with electronics. You know, everybody's heard about um, computers and phones and stuff having to be made more repairable. Then maybe it's just a bit more in our consciousness that mm. we, we should repair things. But jeans, I mean, I'm not sure that people would feel the same about many clothing products um but jeans definitely people are very attached to and a lot of people are coming to me with not one jean that they want repair but like a pile of six that they've been sitting on for two or three years because they just didn't want to throw them out and they just really hoped that maybe i don't know one day they would learn to repair them or but yeah i've just been so surprised well i do get sometimes struck by how little people might know. Um, our mutual friend Sam Binstead was mm. suggesting that people learn to sew their shirt buttons yeah. on, and I was thinking, well, that is that is a bare minimum. Yeah, but that's a great one. I mean, I'm certain that people are throwing things away because they can't sew a button on because that is an expensive thing to do at an alteration. As I remember, I hate sewing buttons on, by the way. Any kind of hand sewing, I'm biting myself here, but <laughs> I don't really have patience. I love machines. I don't have the patience for hand sewing. But I've taken things to get buttons sewn on before, and I was shocked at how much it costs. It's like six pounds a button or something. Um Good Lord, that sounds like a business opportunity. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that it is because then when you think about it, well, how long is it going to take you to to sew that button on? Maybe 20 minutes? 20 minutes. Oh, no, really? Uh, to do it button? properly? Yeah. Yeah? With all the... Because I was learned to sew a button on, like, with making the shank and all the winding. Well, and, that's yeah. three minutes then, but... Really? Oh, not on. me. Not me. <laughs> Getting... No. Yeah. I mean, I think if people, if there was a demand for it, then people would have the the button machines in those, um, in the alterationists. So, um, 
things will become more affordable the more people use them as well. Mm. I'm just skeptical to button machines because this so often I get something new and a button will pop off yeah. within the first minutes and, and I just know that within the next two weeks I'll have resown every single yeah, button. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, that's really that if if you can um, afford it, a hand sewn on button is definitely way superior and going to last longer. Something that came to mind when you were mentioning that you uh, you went to a shoemaker with shoes that couldn't be repaired. Mm. Uh, was it three, three, four years ago, I wanted to try out the service offered by one of the Northamptonshire shoemakers, one of the good British brands, because they offered this refurbishment service, mm-hmm. whereby I think it was roughly half the price of a new pair of shoes they'd refurbish your old favourites. So I thought I'd give that a go. Mm. And I found some of their shoes on eBay, quite cheap, quite ropey, and sent them. Oh. But they couldn't do it because they'd uh, they'd chucked out the lasts for them, so they were no good. So I found another pair, sent them to them. Oh, no, they were, just, they were too far gone. And I think I tried a third pair, which didn't go through either, because as it turned out, the shoes had to be pretty new, and had never been to a shoemaker before and in pretty bloody good condition, really, if they were going to bother refurbishing them. Uh, and I was thinking, well, that's not much of a service then, is it? No, that's really disappointing. <laughs> that sounds a little bit like greenwash. <laughs> but, well, this was sort of a bit pre-greenwashing, yeah. but now that you say it, yeah, they, they were definitely Okay, making so they had out some intention. But I, I sent both shoes to uh, uh, another shoemaker, Shoe Healer, up in Doncaster, they fix them up, no problem at all. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Because so maybe the they do live on. Did they, and and when they fixed them up, did they did it affect like the integrity or the look of the shoe or anything? Because I no. wonder if the the original maker might just be a little bit too attached or um, invested in certain elements that they wouldn't be prepared to do something like slightly the wrong way. Or... I found their excuses a bit uh, wishy-washy, really. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, that's really cruel and disappointing. Yeah, I mean, there's it, people it was. offering lifetime repairs on jeans as well, and I'm sure that they sometimes regret that, um, some of the things that they get back. And um, but Well, that's a, bit, that's a case of careful wording, isn't it? Because whose lifetime is it they're talking about? Because when you get a lifetime warranty, you think, well, I'm going to be living for a long time, so that's a good warranty. (laughs) But then they might say, well, we expect our genes to last for 12 weeks, so that's the lifetime. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. So (laughs) when I come to offer my lifetime repairs, I'll take that into (laughs) consideration. I have seen a Norwegian denim brand, Livid, they offer free repairs, but I think it's limited to a certain two or three times. That's it, yeah. That sounds very reasonable. And I think that you've got to put some um, parameters in there about what size of rips or holes. And Because, you know, there's some people who just wear something and just let the holes get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's very unfair to then send it back. Um, I always appreciate it when somebody sends me something where it's just started to wear. Yeah, because yeah. it is a lot easier to it's fix it easier. before it gets bad. Yeah. 
But say you get a pair of raw denim heritage Japanese jeans, which have been worn hard and long. And I hate the word, but people talk about it all the time on the forums. It's had a massive crotch blowout. <laughs> and of course, this is a pair of Japanese raw denim, so mm. they've never been washed. Yeah. How thrilled are you to unwrap this and start fixing it? Mm. Um, oh, do you know what? I'm not really very squeamish about like dirty textiles because part of my job for the last 20 years has been diving around in those like vintage warehouses and stuff looking for Ooh. the most beautiful and stinkiest jeans. But um, for the integrity of the repair, <laughs> it's <laughs> essential that you wash them before you send them to me. So yeah, we, I... Smart move. Yeah, we don't repair anything that hasn't been washed. And it's, I mean, it's more applicable to stretch jeans, but it, it's a bit, when you've had a, like a knee in a... It's also applicable to rigid ones, a knee or a bum in the jean, then that's obviously stretching it out. And if I put the repair on top of that, then the the jean's going to shrink back when you wash it, but the repair won't because the thread Mm. is um, a core spun thread. Um, So yeah, it's it's just not it's not good for the integrity of the jean. (laughs) Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. So if someone comes to you with a pair of jeans that need a repair, I mean, what sort of money are they looking at uh probably for the crotch blowouts like anywhere from 20 pounds it depends how how serious how big how big the rip is i think compared to others mine are quite reasonable at the moment because i've not been doing it for very long um i've only had the machine a year so um i, I yeah i just kind of keeping it keeping it pretty reasonable at the moment and mm. my aim is to get I, I want to get as many jeans back in action and in use for as long as possible um it's not like and I, I think like we do we do a good job you can see on um, the website some examples of our repairs but it's not like museum standard <laughs> but you have a you have a proper darning machine yeah don't you? I've got the darning machine it's so fun I've always wanted one of them um, and at the beginning, it was it, it looks really easy actually, but it did take me a while to get the hang of it. And I got really bad shoulder ache um, after the first few sessions that I did on it. I just find it really actually quite hard work physically handling the the jeans. Um, but yeah, definitely got into the swing of it now, and I love it. It's so relaxing to do. Can you explain why darning is better than patching? Uh, it's not really. Like, oh. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know. Is it? <laughs> is it? it certainly looks a lot better. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, if you just want your jean to look like your jean, um, then the darning is definitely the answer. I guess, why would it be better than patching? I mean, the temptation could be that with a patch, you can put you put a patch on top of a rip, but you haven't properly reinforced the rip underneath, and it'll just keep getting worse and worse. Um, when you put a patch on, I've seen this happen as well, if it, especially if it's on the knee, you get, you've got a lot of tension and grinning where you've stitched the patch on around the outside, and so you might start to get rips above or below the patch because you're making extra abrasion points. But honestly, I, I love all mending. I love visible mending, invisible mending. Um, and I think the, the darning machine's fantastic because it can really make a really robust repair. Um, but I also... I like 
I like to see a gene where someone's really clearly loved it that much that they've sat for evenings at home sewing patches on it themselves. Um, just take your time to do that nicely and, and well because I've also had a few back for repair that had really awful home repairs done on it and then it makes it really hard. Like, like you were saying with the shoes, it makes them really hard to um, to do a good darn on it afterwards. But yeah, no, I'm I'm a fan of all mending. <laughs> That's good. I mean, that is also sort of one of the ways forward, isn't it? Yeah. Taking care of what we have. Yeah, and being open-minded about what things look like as well. There was something you mentioned a bit earlier on that I wanted to follow up on. You were talking about uh, fit development mm. of genes. Yeah. And I, I noticed one of the jeans makers I follow recently, and they were working on their fit. And it got me thinking, well, the fit for whose body? Yes. That's a really critical point, isn't it? So, uh, I mean, a good jeans brand or will have a comprehensive range of fits for lots of different bodies. Um, and that's not that's not confined to um, women's wear fits and, and, and men's wear fits. It's really just about body shapes and, and body types. Um, so like straight bodies and curvy bodies and full thighs and slimmer thighs. Um, yeah, I mean, it, the, the list is endless, really. And I suppose what most people do is they pitch at the average what the commercial brands do is they look at, okay, so 70% of bodies are this and we'll pitch our, um, we'll pitch our fit block at this because that's our biggest chance of making sales. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very true. It's very, it's very subjective and you, it can take a long time, can't it, to find the fit that's perfect for your body shape and once you find it. You stick well, with it. It must be especially tricky if you're a very, very small maker, so you, you're you really only making one or two models. Yeah. Then in that case, I think you have to... I mean, you, you try to to make as many... I mean, personally, I, I will... I will always offer it. So I, I'm, I do some upcycling of jeans as well, and I will always offer to do... Um, a, not a bespoke, but a made-to-order for someone based on their measurements so that you, you don't leave people out. Not everybody can do that. But, um, yeah, I think if you're only able to offer a small range of fits, then communication about what they are and um, what, what, they look at, what they look like on certain key measurements, that's really important. Like just saying what your what your fit block is based on. Um, mm. I find trying to work out fits based on uh, measurements to be so risky that I just don't do it anymore. Is that because the the <laughs> when you actually order the garment, they come back and they they're not the measurements that they were supposed to be? Well, they I mean they they probably are, but the chance is that I'm not the measurements right. I thought I am yeah. or. Or that the measurements don't really describe the fit 
in a way that is meaningful. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of other factors in, to come into play as well, because when you go to brands who don't really understand fit, they often become quite obsessed with key measurements, like a waist measurement or um, an arise measurement, a front back and a, a front rise and a back rise. But there's a lot of other things that come into play, like the angles, the leg angles, um, that you can have a gene that is all the measurements of a gene that you've got at home um, but when the gene that you've ordered arrives it's not as you expected it um, because the leg angles probably are different and it makes the crotch sit differently yeah i think uh, i think online companies have become better at giving um, more measurements mm. i mean it used to be just what uh, what is your waist size uh, and a lot of the time, it was vanity-sized anyway. Yeah. I mean, one of my favourite makers, I noticed that his 33s actually measure 37 inches <sighs> because he's using old Wrangler sizing, I think. And oh. I thought, well, that's daft. What, you mean length? Or <laughs> no, the waist? waist? Oh, gosh, that makes no sense at all. No, yeah, I mean, I've also come across recently some of the brands who um, who do this one wash on jeans, yeah. but the waist measurement that they give is the measurement of the jean before they did the one wash, so that's just also extremely confusing. Oh, so, well, that's no sense at no, all. No, it's really hard. Like, you just need you need to have that thing in your hand to try it on, don't you? It's, it's going to be impossible to buy online. It's also, um, yeah. I don't like mysterious any mysteries around around fit really. So, like personally, no. Buying a nice. I'll, I'll tell you one interesting little one though. A pair of UK brand trousers, and I was looking at their offerings, and I thought, well, they don't go above thirty six inch waist, so that's not really size inclusive. No. But I think I'll take a chance. When I got them, they measured thirty nine inches. So. <laughs> How could you get it so wrong? That's wild. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's tolerance in denim, but I presume they're raw, so there shouldn't be... No, this wasn't denim. Oh, this wasn't was denim. just um, some cotton twill, I suppose. But, uh, yeah, no, that's that's really wild. I I don't know. I, yeah, it, it, it baffles me that things are, are not, not being checked. Um, but yeah, I guess there was no there was no QC inspection. <laughs> in that I'm not holding you responsible. Don't worry. Uh, Is there anything you'd like to sort of mention uh, in closing? I was going to ask you where the best denim comes from because oh. there's not really anything coming from America now. Or no, I think they started up a bit again. Mm -hmm. um, there's of course the Japanese classics. Yeah, and then there's the high tech Italian. Yeah. And then there's the British-made outsider. I can tell you where my favourite denims come from. So, yeah, I, I do love to work with Japanese denims. Um, and, yeah, do so as much as I can. But I wouldn't say that the best denims come exclusively uh, from Japan. And I also work with some really nice denims from Turkey um, and some beautiful denims from coming from cone mills still um, so yeah I think it's it's a good denim can come from anywhere really 
but you like the slubby ones, the uneven. Yeah, I mean, I do like quite quite a classic denim, um, and I think that still, yeah, with a little bit of a, a little bit of uneven slub, but a really good, strong quality cotton, and you. Yeah, you just get that in abundance from the Japanese mills. So that's, yeah, always a pleasure to work with Japanese fabrics. But you can also get that. I've worked with some beautiful fabrics from Orta in Turkey. Um, and I work with some lovely fabrics from Berto in Italy. Um, and yeah, so, and yeah, like I said, some, some lovely qualities from comb mills. I've seen some really lovely fabrics recently from a mill in Pakistan so yeah there's there's a lot of good denim out there and um, it's just someone having the the knowledge and the the passion to to make it's interesting beautiful. it's interesting though how we lump them together by saying yes say oh I like Japanese denim mm. because it's not all created equal is it I mean some of it's from big modern factories yeah whilst other again is from tiny little workshop with say a couple of looms yeah exactly and I guess it depends what you're doing with it as well like if you're making uh, five pocket jeans then um, I, I love to work with Japanese denims for that if you're making like an overall or um, a, a dungaree as we call it in the UK those kind of things and I tend to use uh, European fabric for that maybe um yeah there's just there's lots of variety in in the denim world there you go have you got any final words well uh yeah keep hold of your jeans don't throw them away there's lots of life left in them uh repair them send them to me if you don't want them anymore <laughs> um can always have a cycle them uh Check out White West. <laughs> Thanks so much for being my guest today. I very much enjoyed our chat. Oh, I really did. Thank you so much for inviting me along. It's been lovely to chat to you. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.